Hi there, welcome to Stoked to Be Here. My name's Laura and I'm the back half of Stella Tandem, a record-breaking attempt to cycle around the world in 2022. In the lead up to this challenge, um, we've been talking to people from the worlds of cycling and, and endurance to get some tips and tricks along our way. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Ian Walker, who um, has a few ultra cycling events under his belt, including the transcontinental race. He was first finisher in the North Cape 4000. Um, potentially his biggest achievement, though, is he holds the north to south record for cycling across Europe in 16 days, 20 hours and 59 minutes, I believe, which is averaging over or around 377 kilometres a day. So that's an, an epic endurance um, feat. So I'm sure he will have have lots of tips and, and tricks for us too. Um, he's, he's also a doctor in his own right and works at, at Surrey University. Um, so, so welcome Ian. Hello, thanks for having me on. <laughs> no problem at all. Um, first of all, I'd just like to touch on um, your, your, your um, research and your, your doctorate because it does actually have a bit of relevance to um, cycling and, and um, self-propelled <laughs> motion, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, since about 2005, I've been doing research on traffic safety and especially for what what's often called vulnerable road users. And that really grew out of cycling. It was literally cycling to work one day. Uh, and, and I was in a period where I was a bit dissatisfied with the work I was doing. and I was looking for something new. And that had been going on for a few months of trying to think, what can I move into? And I was genuinely cycling to work one morning on a Brompton and people were passing far too close. And one person was shouting abuse at me out of the car. And I just had this real light bulb moment of, I, I, should, I should study this. <laughs> I should study why this is happening and why I don't feel safe on this road here. And I've been doing that ever since. If I'm honest, I don't do quite as much of that as I'd like to in an ideal world think I would just do traffic safety because I find it so interesting and so important but it's quite hard to get it funded and you know, partly for that reason I find myself pulled into quite often into doing other sort of related things I do a lot of work on sustainability and travel mode choice and things like that but I think my first love is that traffic safety. Yeah that's I mean that's amazing I think it's it's really rare to um having an ultra distant cyclist or, or potentially other other sports as well that you've managed to relate your job so much to it it's it's obviously quite a niche thing and yeah I don't think I've come across somebody that's managed to align the two quite so well before um it's and, actually kind of coincidental though you know there was a long period where I was doing research on cycling but not actually doing very much and the, you know for quite a few years I almost felt like a little bit of a fraud that I was expressing professional opinions on the subject, but not doing it. And I actually feel a lot happier in some ways, the fact that everything's fallen back into line. <laughs> well, I, th I think you're certainly qualified to, to talk about the subject of cycling now. I think you've, you've done enough miles for sure. Um, and the, the other kind of interesting is that thing about you is you, you kind of, I suppose you come into it later in life, you could say, because you've not always been been an avid cyclist or an ultra endurance. And I think it's it's true of quite a lot of the kind of people that do ultra distance events, be it running or cycling. Um, so just a brief summary, how, how did you get into it? What happened? What was it like kind of growing up um, 
for you and yeah how how did it all come about it was all very unplanned and all quite late in life so yeah i'm about to turn 48 as we speak um and this all really started when i was just on the cusp of turning 40 so i was doing nothing sporty at all really and just as i was 39 and nine ten months or something like that uh, a little bit out of the blue a friend just invited me to take part in an ultra distance run and i just had this real moment of yeah yeah why not Let, let's do it and went from nothing to running this incredibly mountainous ultra in about seven eight months something like that and you know just absolutely fell in love with the long distance running it was just this incredible experience the personal challenge of it the just the pleasure of watching myself get fitter and get better at something day by day because obviously when you're starting from a, such a low baseline yeah, it's, you, it's quite a, a steep incline isn't it yeah exactly yeah so so you you know obviously it's quite different a few years down the line when you have to fight tooth and nail to get a two percent gain somewhere but obviously in those early days you get this massive quick gain and it's very rewarding and so, yeah, I was doing all the running and I spent several years doing it and I got reasonably good at it, you know, um, to my surprise, I, I went into this with no expectation I'd do anything other than get round. But I was generally finishing, you know, the top end of the field. I, I was generally sort of top 10% in any race I entered, including some you know, fairly serious ones. And that, that, you know, I was just very happily doing this. And then everything just went awry. I learned about ultra distance cycling and there was something about that that just absolutely captured me. And I just went, well, I've got to do this. I've got to go and do this bigger thing because the, the thing that grabbed me about the running, the thing that I just loved was the fact that to, to do one of these hundred mile races, you just focused on nothing else for a day and having a single focus for an entire day when nothing else even enters your head is a glorious experience and when I learned about the transcontinental race on the bike and thought wow you could have that same experience but for two weeks <laughs> yeah then I, I just had to know what that felt like and so I just literally the next day stopped running and started cycling Wow, yeah, then it's kind of all, all going from there, hasn't it? And it's mm. it's interesting because um, Steve, in my front half, he's he's always been a cyclist from you know age eleven. He was doing his first hundred mile ride, whereas I'd I'd always potted on the bike, but I'd never done. I wasn't a sporty cyclist. I wasn't competitive. So I kind of came to it a bit later too. Um, but do you think there was almost a, a, a bit of an advantage for these ultra endurance sports? There's quite a lot of kind of people that are kind of longer in the tooth and more experienced doing it. Do you think, do you think it kind of lends itself to people that have got a maybe a bit more life experience and things like that? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, possibly. I think certainly in, in the running world, uh, you know, like you've just alluded to, a lot of people do get into it later. And the ones who are really good at it often get into it after being fast as a young person. Mm. So the really, really great ultra runners were pretty good marathon runners in their early 20s. And then as they just begin to slow down a bit, they take that incredible fitness across and translate it to this longer, slower world. 
and then just absolutely dominating. And, you know, people like Jim Wamsley in America and people like that are great examples of that. Um, in the cycling world, I don't know, because on the one hand, the you don't have the physical beating that you do with running. So running just really punishes your body. And I remember I used to come downstairs most mornings <laughs> just feeling like I'd been beaten up the day before. And as soon as I started cycling, that was gone. So there, are, there aren't those long-term stresses on the body with cycling that mean you can't do it for long. But then on the other hand, and I think this might be more where you're going with this, experience and self-restraint and knowing yourself do go quite a distance with these things. And self-confidence, having been around the block a few times, having solved problems in the past i think all of those things do help and so maybe if you've had a typical youth and maybe not <laughs> you know, spent your whole time dealing with adversity in, in your younger years then maybe being a bit older does help but you never know there might be some 22 year old out there who's had an incredibly hard life and learned <laughs> all sorts of lessons who, who will trounce us all yeah, no, it's, it's interesting to see. And I think endurance sport is a, is a growing field. So, so maybe it'll just take a bit of time for the youngsters to, to catch up, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously, yeah, you've, you know, you've got a full time job. You've you're obviously very invested in, in your work. Um, but for events, you know, like the TCR, the North Cape and and obviously the um, the record attempt, um, you're having to fit in the training for this around around your job and around around your work and this is something that I've um, <laughs> had to be quite inventive with as well so it's trying to kind of squeeze those hours into the day and um, I know you've been kind of an avid commuter but yeah how have you how have you gone about factoring all that in? Yeah the commute was the secret i think if i hadn't been commuting to work every day which is kind of a, an 80 kilometer round trip in my old job then i'd have really struggled and one of the reasons is um well actually i saw it in lockdown so in the start of lockdown i was trying to keep the same level of fitness and activity up and the, i found it hard to go out and just do three hours riding when i wasn't going anywhere whereas going three hours riding every day to and from work w was fine because I was just getting to and from work. Um, whereas taking three hours out of my day when there was no actual reason to do it, 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 you know, it actually felt self-indulgent um, to take that same length of time. And it, it just goes to show how important perception is because the length of time is the same, but doing it purely for fitness felt self-indulgent in a way that doing it for fitness and getting to work didn't. Um, and if I'm honest, I, I don't know if I would have been able to do as much training if it hadn't been for the commute. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, definitely helps to factor it in. I mean, have you, um, were you very strict about it? Was it like, right, every day, no matter the weather, no matter sunshine, pouring rain, whatever, were you always on the bike? Because I'm I'm quite an avid commuter. It takes quite a lot to put me off. So, yeah, did you kind of really, really stick to that schedule? Yeah, I did. And it's, it took more than the weather to put me off. I went to work in some absolutely <laughs> filthy conditions. I mean, I've got 
I've got photos of my bike computer showing temperatures of minus 11. Um, I, yeah, it was, it was the classic headwind both ways every day. And yeah, through autumn and winter, some of the rides were brutal, but it's great. You know, it, it really, it does toughen you up. It genuinely does toughen you up. One of the other things that actually worked surprisingly well with the commute that I hadn't planned, but really paid off was because I'd you know be leaving work at the end of the day, five o'clock or whatever, I would quite often misjudge my lunch <laughs> and not eat enough, or I'd eat too early. And and basically, a lot of my rides home were spent bonking. And <laughs> so like you had a lot of bonk training as well. <laughs> yeah, but also I think what it was not only was that sort of you know that physiological bonk training that some people do, but what I've learned, and you, you may well have learned this as well, there's a knack to cycling when you're knackered. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a trick to getting reasonable power into the pedals, even when you don't feel it. And I don't think I'd have learned that trick if I hadn't so often had to get myself home, which was, you know, it was quite hilly. It was a hilly route. And yeah, there's, there are ways to get yourself up a hill when you've nothing in the tank, but you have to learn it the hard way. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's true. And I don't know if my um, physicality uh, makes a difference. I think um, Stevie always seems to bonk a lot easier or earlier than, than I do. If he's out of food or energy, that, that's it, he's gone. Whereas I can I can truck on. I, I famously once did a 140-mile ride on one rather big pizza, but that was it for, for the entire ride. So, wow. yeah, I think there's... Most there's... people use a bike. <laughs> yeah I was on the bike I didn't take the pizza with me <laughs> but yeah it was um there's obviously ways to tap into to those mm. those reserves aren't there definitely yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um and yeah obviously the training is is a massive massive part of of um, being able to do all these um kind of adventures but the planning I'm finding is is a huge part as well and that's taking a huge huge chunk of time I mean did you find um how much was involved in in all all of these kind of events was it because the things like the tcr and the north cape you plan your own route as well and i assume that kind of fed into um planning for your, your europe record too well i mean at first let me just say that the amount of planning i did is nothing compared to what you must be doing <laughs> yeah. because Thanks for that. You know, I've, I've, <laughs> I've crossed a continent three times in different ways but um, to go around the world, the logistics of that must just be mind-boggling. <laughs> and in particular, you must be frequently running into the issue I had in Germany and Austria of no street view, because street view is such a lifesaver <laughs> for planning. Uh, and I imagine a lot of the places you're going, you don't have that. But yeah, um, I was a real planner. I, I really, really planned to the nth degree. And I was absolutely adamant that I didn't want any surprises out on the road. And I wanted to just minimize the need to think because, you know, I knew I'd be a mess. I knew I'd be tired and it'd be hard work. And you don't want to be making really difficult decisions when you're tired and struggling. So I had this real mantra that I sort of probably spent a long time muttering at the kitchen table, which was uh, think at home, not on the bike. You know, just get all the thinking done. And yeah, I, I really spent a lot of hours preparing. I spent so long working on the routes and not just planning the route, uh, although obviously that was massive, but 
just studying the routes. So actually, to pick up on what you said a second ago, yeah, I planned the record attempt route and I planned the transcontinental. The North Cape 4000 route was given to us. So that was a fixed route for all the riders in that race. Uh, but still, whether I generated the route myself or I was given the route, I studied it in absolute meticulous detail. I was on street view pretty much the whole length. Um, I knew where every shop was. I knew what time every shop opened and closed. I knew where every 24-hour petrol station was across the entire route. Uh, you know, And I had all of this stuff marked and planned because that way I didn't have to think. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we've recently um, ridden All Points North, um, which I think you did the, the first edition of, mm. <laughs> slightly yeah. faster than us, I, I may add. Um, but yeah, that's the first time we've really got invo that involved in route planning. And I think Stevie thought I was mad when I started going through every petrol station and noting opening and closing times. But yeah, actually, things like that are, are invaluable in keeping your speed up and kind of keeping you, you going on the road. There are things you probably don't even think of as well. So like with preparation, you can often have a really good stab at estimating what time you will be somewhere, especially early in a ride. And that way you can say, well, you know, maybe I will go through this city because it's going to be three in the morning and the traffic won't be bad. So, and you know, that can influence you. But, you know, my planning would also involve things like I knew what the moon was going to be doing because I'd look that up because it makes a big difference if you're riding at night, if there's a full moon or not. So if I've ever been doing a ride like that, I, I've got all the moon data as well, uh, because that's the sort of thing that can make a big difference to the comfort of going through the night. Yeah, now you say that, that's actually really obvious, isn't it? And yeah, but I'd, I'd never thought of checking that in advance. That's, yeah, a really good point, actually. And one of the things I've, I've is, is you're really um, strict on the bike about, and this is, I mean, it's akin to a lot of the um, fast record breaking riders like Mark Bowman, for example, is reducing the faff time on the bike. Um, and it's, it's something that we kind of did quite well on at all points North. We failed a little bit at the last control. It kind of all went out the window then, but um, do you want to kind of, share some of your strategies for just being really efficient with your time on and off the bike essentially yeah i mean i think it's always going to slip a bit when you're self-supported you know uh, i like you uh, was just doing everything myself i was having to find my own food make my own repairs do all that stuff so yeah you're never going to be 100% perfect and be in and out in 15 minutes every single time but it doesn't stop you aiming for it and yeah some of the tricks are um, having a little mental checklist before you stop so if I'm riding along I'll be adding things to a mental list of what I do need to do when I stop so you know maybe there's there's a brake cable that needs a tweak and so that'll go on the list and maybe my bag is hanging at a funny angle and needs adjusting so that'll go on the list and I make sure that I hit all of those jobs when I stop um, so that I'm not forgetting anything and using that time maximally um, and again in terms of using the time as best as possible you can be thinking well what's the right order to do things so yes I need to adjust my brake cable and and tighten my saddle bag but actually obviously you should do that after you've started eating because then the food can be digesting yeah. while you adjust your bag 
but you can't adjust your bag and then eat the food. So there's always an optimal order if you've got a set of jobs as well. One of the biggest time sinks, if you're self-supported, and this is going to be an absolute monster for you, <laughs> is every shop is completely different. Every country's food is different. Just as you get used to what the packets look like, you're over a border and suddenly everything looks completely different and you pay for it in a completely different way. And I mean, that is such a massive, massive time sink. Um, the time spent learning shops and just trudging around shops. Now, I guess you'll have a big advantage that you can divide and conquer with two of you. You know, one can hit the shop, one can start the jobs. And um, that's probably quite a nice thing if you've got a division of labor. But yeah, it, that sort of stuff will suck time. Uh, and it's so easy to to suck more than you think. Yeah, it time just flies. As soon as you stop and you, you think, even if you think you've barely stopped at all, you, you, if you look at your stats on the um, Strava or whatever, it's yeah. you, you quickly realise how much time just goes stopping, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, actually, and, and just as a little tip there, actually, uh, grabbing a hot drink is quite a good strategy so obviously it's just really nice anyway yeah. great but it's it's quite a handy way of telling how much time has elapsed yeah you know, yeah instinctively yeah because it's, you know, it's, by it's, the time it's ready to drink it's time to go yeah no that's a good point actually and yeah as i say we were, it was our last control on all points north this year where we um yeah we made all those mistakes we turned up without a plan and then we tried to find some and then we changed our mind and we you know up and down the same road and by the time mm. we decided on everything it was it, i think it's best part of an hour gone which was oh. a little bit disappointing yeah. yeah um but have you have you had any of, of those moments where you've just it's just all gone to um pot as it were and you've kind of can you recall any stops where or you've just gone you know sod this i'm going to stop down and have a have a warm meal <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I when I did my first really long ride, which was the transcontinental race, I really didn't go into that very disciplined. And it was through doing that that I became a lot more disciplined. So I think because especially when I was preparing for the TCR, I watched a lot of videos of past events. And one of the things that was really notable in the videos was people were always eating. And of course, with hindsight, you know, of course, because the, the camera people would hang out at the stops. And so, of course, the videos are full of people eating pizzas. But I think I kind of absorbed this idea that TCR meant eating lots of pizzas. And so <laughs> it's like every time I saw somewhere that did hot food, I just stopped and had a meal. And I can just remember stopping in some like really weird uh, places in the middle of Slovakia and having pizzas in these little towns. And then when I looked at the Strava afterwards, like you just mentioned, I realized just how much time had disappeared scoffing pizzas in out of the way towns. And when I did North Cape, I, I thought, I've got to be so much more disciplined about this and started to get much better at it. And then in the year between North Cape and doing the record attempt, I really deliberately worked on it and, and really, um, you know, started to, to practice stopping quickly and getting good at that i've actually i've just remembered another tip um now this is this is much more for europe but of course you are crossing europe as well yeah there's quite a bit uh, of europe in there <laughs> this was a, a tip passed on to me from uh, my coach holly uh aldis and lidls tend to be laid out the same everywhere 
Yeah. So if you can find an Aldi and a Lidl, then the bakery will be just on your left as you go in. And the oh, cold right. stuff. <laughs> so actually, it's, it's a way to shortcut some of that uh, change as you go from place to place. At least Aldi and Lidl are always the same. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably quite a good one, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah, I think there's we'll have to figure out the sevens and levens and things like that around the world and, and see if we can apply similar to them. But mm. yeah, there's definitely a a kind of a, a bonus to having a strategy like that and in terms of nutrition did that mean as well kind of saving on time and fact did you go for the same sort of foods all the time was there kind of a set menu almost as it were um rather than branching out <laughs> no i i just ate whatever i could find that was quick and easy um now i mean this is one of the things i sort of feel i should warn you about i got so absolutely pig sick of eating food <laughs> uh yeah I, 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 and that happens in two weeks um after two weeks of eating ten thousand calories a day i was just uh, the i was completely over it i i just hated the process of putting stuff in my mouth and you're gonna have a lot more <laughs> of that so it's probably something you're gonna need to think about i guess mm. of how are we going to manage to force ourselves to eat eight thousand calories a day yeah. when it's going to be mostly junk food yeah yeah and it's um, the thing to watch out for in particular that i found and i've heard other people say this as well is especially when you're eating a lot of sugary stuff which inevitably you are from petrol stations your mouth gets really sore yeah so this we've happened had that. on record attempt yeah and and on the north cape 4000 my mouth just hurt after a 10 days mm. and um i don't know what the solution is i don't know if mouthwash helps or something but uh that that's a real challenge yeah I've, i think i've given myself that even on you know 600 kilometer events before just from <laughs> maxing out on the sugar overnight and things like that so yeah i don't quite know what the answer mm. will be but yeah i think it <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe avoiding the sugar pro proper yeah. food because actually again another part of Another part of the answer to your question a moment ago about did I have set meals and so on, you can't predict what you're going to feel like. Yeah. Even a day into a long ride, and especially a week into a long ride or a month, you've no way of predicting what you're going to feel like. Uh, and sometimes you just get your massive cravings. Um, for me, because I'm eating the petrol station junk a lot of the time, you just get cravings for something savory. You know, I remember almost bursting into tears at how good some fruit tasted in <laughs> Latvia um, because sometimes you just you just crave something fresh yeah yeah and it, it I think your body kind of sometimes knows what it needs doesn't it we rode a 600 this yeah. year in the the baking heat I think it was kind of on the hottest weekends we had this this year and um, it was um, cold tinned spaghetti bolognese that I suspect is a very high salt oh. content, <laughs> which yeah. is why it tasted so good as, you know, body's craving the salt. And yeah, it's, it's funny how your body kind of makes those, those decisions for you almost sometimes. Although if you are ripping into cold tin stuff in Britain, then my top tip is rice pudding. Yeah. That's a good one as well, isn't it? If you're after yeah. a sweet option. Yeah. That always goes down. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Um, and you obviously have you, been in all sorts of different climates in, in Europe through through these rides. Um, one thing I noticed because I've, I've read your book quite recently and just handily just before All Points North uh, when we rode that as well. So it was quite inspiring to read that before the event. Oh, good um, timing. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
one thing I did notice was the, I believe it is on the, the North Cape when you, uh, it got very cold and it, um, it said some of the weather you experienced there is only just dipping like freezing, but um, it, you said you felt colder than, than you ever had, um, even at, you know, commuting in, in kind of minus double figures in the UK. And I just really wanted to ask you about why you thought that was, was it the nature of the, the event and the endurance and the tiredness, or was it, do you think it was more to do with the climate and maybe the, we have a very damp cold here, don't we? Whereas I know other countries have a very dry cold. Um, so I was just really interested in that because obviously we'll be dealing with lots of different, different climates around the world. I suspect it was that climatic thing that you just mentioned. It was, yeah, minus one, minus two, something like that, which should have been fine. I had all my clothes on. Uh, you know, I ended up with my sleeping bag stuffed under my jacket and newspapers shoved down my clothes and I was still too cold. And it was, it was just something about the air. It was the moving air of my body. So if I got off the bike or stopped, then I was absolutely fine. But as soon as the air came over my, over my body, it was absolutely brutally cold. And so it must be something about very, I don't know if it was very dry or very wet or something, but there was something about the air that just stripped the heat away. And in the end, I just had to kind of bed down under a bush and, and bivy it out until the morning. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause yeah, I think, yeah, you can't necessarily rely on the, the temperature gauge as to, to what conditions will feel like on the road. So yeah, no, it's a, are you going to be crossing places like Mongolia or anything like that? Um, so we, we've, unless unless things change with COVID, et cetera, et cetera, we, we shouldn't be going through Mongolia. And um, we've kind of aimed for the route to be on the warmer side of things. So we'll likely be uncomfortably hot at times as opposed to <laughs> yeah. uncomfortably cold. I've tried to keep it that way just because that will mean less kit to carry and, and less issues like yeah. that. So. It, yeah. if we're unlucky we might dip below freezing but yeah I'd, I'd hope not much more than that so um that's okay. why I'm quite keen to be prepared for <laughs> colder temperatures if we need to be but hope, hopefully not yeah. obviously your book's um endless perfect circles um I mentioned um and a very thorough account of your experiences to date as it were and um I think when uh, did that come out last year? It's kind of just on the cusp of lockdown, I think, wasn't it? So, um, yeah, I did it just after lockdown, actually. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah, I've been working on it for a while. Um, lockdown came around and, and it was a chance to just finish that off and, and get it out there. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with it. I, I think it came out quite nicely and um, People seem to be finding it useful for inspiration, but also for the practical side. Because I did try to, you know, I, I teach for a living. I can't help myself but make something instructional. So, um, yeah, I did try to largely empty my head of everything I'd learned. Yeah, and it certainly, yeah, it comes across. It's it's not only only useful and instruction you say, but it's it's also um, very entertaining too. Um, yeah, and I, I'd kind of twigged it. it was kind of, yeah, lockdown probably contributed to that. And I know you touched on it already, but kind of how have you kind of got through the, the lockdown scenario in terms of staying on the bike? I know it's been, we've, we've come up with all sorts of weird and wonderful kind of arbitrary rides and things like that. But yeah, how, how have you kind of kept, kept on moving as it were? Well, there's a lot of answers to that. Um, to jump to the conclusion before I come back, <laughs> uh, a big part of it is I've been doing a lot less and 
So early on in the lockdown, I, I really had, you know, I was on such a treadmill of training and racing and riding. And I, I was just really feeling this incredible drive to keep going and keep getting the training in. And then I was talking to a friend who, who does long rides. Well, we do long rides together. He's more of a time trialist by inclination. Um, and he just said something quite casually along the lines of, you know, I'm just going to have a, an easy year and that's fine. And actually that's that filtered in. And, and after a while, that's kind of what I've done as well. Um, now, the, the slightly longer version of that journey is, like I say, I felt this, I was on such a treadmill of training and pushing myself and riding all day that early in lockdown, I was looking for something to use the fitness. You know, I was, I was very fit. And as lockdown kicked in, I was really cranking it up because I was supposed to be doing the Transamerica race. And so I was starting that process of really cranking up the distances. I was doing 600 kilometers every weekend and then lockdown hit. And I thought, well, I've got to use this fitness. You know, I've got to do something. And I had a go. So you're probably aware, just as we're speaking, about a week ago, uh, the record for the longest distance in a week got broken. Yeah, uh, I saw that. that. Yeah. yeah. So I actually had a, a little quiet go at that twice. <laughs> and so the first time I basically went to the shop, bought this enormous bag of food, <laughs> dumped it in the kitchen and said, right, I'm going to just ride constantly uh all day for seven days and just <laughs> hop home sleep but of course this was early in the lockdown when we were told not to go far from home so yeah. it took on an extra little challenge of how far can i ride if i ride all day and don't go more than 20 kilometers from home yeah so i was yeah. <laughs> basically just going round and round in loops trying to find the flattest way i could that didn't go very far away from home and it was actually, at first, it was quite fun. So I'd go out, I'd ride for like 100 kilometers, drop back home, because of course I was close, yeah. drop back home, stuff my face with food, fill my pockets up again and set off. Okay. And so the first day was kind of okay. And, and you know, I, I did a quite long distance. I can't remember what it was, you know, 450, 500, you know, something like that. Uh, went to bed, got up at three o'clock the next morning, back on the road. Obviously, you're quite tired and sore by that point. And after like an hour or so out on the road the next morning in the dark, I, I just had this real, why am I doing this? You know, I've been down this road 15 times already. Why, why am I doing this? And I, I gave up and I found it really hard without having somewhere to go. I found it really hard to do the distances. And then about a month later, six weeks later, I had another go and exactly the same thing happened. I just couldn't keep up the motivation without a destination and just riding for its own sake round and round the same roads just broke me both times um and then it was from there that I started to sort of take it a bit easy it's at that point that I did start to find riding so much for no reason hard to justify to myself and then other things kicked in along one of the key ones being that I got a new job so I now, as you mentioned at the beginning, I, I work at the University of Surrey, uh, but before I was working closer to home. So now I'm going over there for several days a week. Um, I'm not lugging bikes back and forth. So I've actually started running again to a large extent. So I'm still doing some really fun social rides, but day to day, I'm actually running more. And do you know what's interesting? This has come full circle 
because after four years of purely cycling and not running it's almost like being back at the start and I'm seeing the gains quickly and <laughs> you know, uh, seeing rapid progress as I go back to the running because uh, obviously I've been cycling at such a level that progress has been incredibly hard to gain and so I'm just enjoying having a, a calm year just running for fun uh, not having to push myself not having to worry it took a while to get there I did have several months of feeling, oh my God, you know, I'm letting my fitness go, this really hard-earned fitness, it's going, it's going, uh, which is hard after years of pushing so hard to get fit. But I have now reached a point where I'm comfortable with it and I've made peace with that. And, you know, I was talking to, I, I, I do a lot of riding with Matt Jones, who was the um, UK 24-hour mountain bike champion a few, a few years back. And, you know, we were out riding the other day and he's in kind of a similar situation and, you know, he just said, listen, you know, we've both got such a, a training base. It'll come back. It's not a problem. And he's dead right. You know, if I get on the bike, I'm still, I've still got the power. Even if I take three weeks off the bike, it doesn't go away. And yeah, it, you know, as all these friends have said to me, it's fine to take a bit of time off, but it took me a long time to realize that. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? And I'm, I think both of us actually we, we really struggle to kind of taper and things like that before events it feels so counterintuitive to rest and recover sometimes and yet it's such an important part and yeah as you say you know just because you, you you don't go at it full throttle all the time doesn't mean it's it's all lost forever so yeah that's a but it can be really hard to remind yourself of that can't it yeah definitely definitely and it's always that fear that once it's gone it'll never come back so yeah 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 yeah, yeah absolutely it's really interesting to hear um so yeah i mean do you do you have any plans for the future now or is it take as it comes obviously the europe record was such an immense beast as it were and you must still feel very proud of that and it's such a massive undertaking um but does that is that going to be your everest or does that just inspire you to to go on and do more it, you know i don't know it might it might be my everest it might well be um i find it kind of there's a big part of me feels you know wants to give myself a little kick and say come on you can't just rest on your laurels <laughs> but then yeah, there's got to be a point where you do and um maybe i need to make peace with that it like i said i wasn't i was supposed to do the trans america race and that got postponed till last year and then didn't happen again and actually we've not heard anything about it this year um i i, I do keep wondering what date would be too late for me to think yeah let's go for this <laughs> yeah. um if it, if it gets postponed so there's still a part of me curious about that but there's a there is a part of me just enjoying taking it easy the 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 bigger issue in some ways was when i was you know i had like seven years of really really serious running or, or riding especially the last period of that when i was doing the bike racing and it really dominates your life. You know, you spend so long doing the planning, doing the preparation, uh, getting yourself ready for it. And I've got to say, and, and you know, I say this partly genuinely to share this with a fellow rider. When I finished the Europe record, I had several months of feeling really bereft. And, you know, I'd spent so long having this target that 
suddenly to not have this thing in my life it was almost a little bit like a bereavement mm. that suddenly a huge thing that was a, that was central to my existence was suddenly not there anymore and it took a lot of getting used to actually and my coach had warned me you know because she's very good at her job <laughs> and she had warned me but I hadn't appreciated just how big it was um, and so she said you know get something else lined up have something to take over when this is done um, and I really wish I had and that's one bit of advice I would give to you is have something in your diary before you go yeah and it's um, obviously yeah the scale of what we're doing is <laughs> different again um, but it's even even so as kind of little projects I've had this year kind of I ran coast to coast and then the all points north have been my two projects and um Steve's helped out or participating in all points north as well but I'm I'm the planning one I'm the planning wizard that <laughs> sits at home and does the admin as it were but yeah after both of those I've had you know something like, oh hang on I've got free time again what do I do with it so and essentially it's how this podcast series has started up again because mm -hmm. I was like right okay I'll finish that next thing in the diary so i think it is a really good point and post-adventured blues i think is is yeah. how it's often talked about isn't it but yeah it's yeah. it's a, a real situation isn't it so yeah but also and hope hopefully this is gonna be a weird thing to say but <laughs> hopefully you'll have the same problem i did that i think that post-adventure blues is potentially worse when the adventure is successful yeah <laughs> i think if i hadn't broken the record it would have been a very different experience but it's in some ways worse because it kind of takes the edge off the success yeah <laughs> yeah yeah because you should be feeling amazing and actually you yeah. sat kind of yeah. twiddling your thumbs wondering what yeah. to do next so but yeah. I think in a sense it's almost a layer on top of that that you you sit there going you sit there telling yourself hang on I should be feeling amazing yeah and it's that dialogue with yourself of you know why aren't you feeling amazing what's wrong with you and that that's the the bit that's hard to deal with yeah yeah so yeah no that's definitely something to be be conscious of but yeah no and that's yeah all that's kind of great to hear and you know you have had an amazing achievement with with the europe record and yeah if you do go on to do anything else in the future we'd um, be really excited to see what that might be um in in any guys really um just before I finish off, I've got some tandem trivia for you, if that's okay. <laughs> um, first question is, have you ever ridden a tandem? I have, yes. Uh, <laughs> only a few times, but it's great fun. What I've not done, I've never been on the back of one. Oh, and I'd be curious what that's like. Um, <laughs> no, because being on the front's an amazing. If, if people listening to this have, have never done it, you've got to try it because it's like riding an e-bike that it looks normal, but suddenly there's all this extra power coming from somewhere you can't explain. Yeah, they are um, real, real drive in my book for sure. Yeah, but yeah, being stoked is a, a different concept because <laughs> it's a bit, a bit like being on a roller coaster, but you can't see where you're going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of trust. If you're used to being a solo cyclist, it's actually quite, quite, um, you have to flip your mind quite a bit to realise that you can't change gear, you can't brake and yeah, you can't see where you're going. So it's, it's mm. an interesting experience. Um, <laughs> so if, <laughs> if you could ride a tandem with anybody, this could be alive, dead, fictional, whatever, who, who would you put on your, your tandem with you? Well, I mean, there's a very real sense in which I have to say my wife, seeing as we got married about 10 <laughs> days ago, 
That oh wow! Well, been... Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, I'd probably be in quite considerable trouble if I didn't say that. Now, yeah, as you'd probably imagine, I have mooted the tandem idea quite a few times, <laughs> and she adamantly refuses on the grounds that she's a control freak. And I keep saying, well, why don't we just go the other way around? You go on the front and steer. I, I'll happily sit on the back and do the work. And and yet, for some reason, it's not emerged. Okay. <laughs> There still might be time yet, but yeah, I think it, it either goes one way or the other on, on tandems and, and I've heard them called all sorts of names, but it, it works out well for me and Steve. So I think I'm a, I'm a strong advocate for it. Yeah. I wonder if we need one of those, um, you know, like the, the Pino or something like that, where one's on a bike and one's on a recumbent and yeah, you're both yeah. looking for something like that. Yeah. They look like great fun actually. Yeah. We um, saw a couple who started out on PVP um, when it was last on one of those and yeah, they're another exciting beast altogether. Have you seen the back-to-back ones? Yeah, I think I've seen pictures. I don't, or I've, I might have seen one, but I don't think I've seen one ridden yet. I don't oh, know if I'd fancy I, I was, that one, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, years ago, I, I visited the World Human Powered Vehicles Championships because they'd asked me to go over and give a research talk. And I got talking to two guys who had one of the back-to-back recumbents. And apparently being the stoker on that is just miserable because you have to interact with everyone who passes you. Oh, so goodness, yeah. Every single yeah, you... <laughs> driver who goes past you waves or, or does something and you have to keep going, hi, yeah, hi, hello, yes, yes, oh, yes, I'm backwards, yes, yeah, yeah. And apparently gets really, really tedious really quickly. Yeah, I, I, I think I'll avoid that one, definitely. Yeah. I think I'll opt for staring at Stevie's lower back instead for well, 18,000 miles. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we, we often say on Tandem, we're, we're joined by the frame. Um, is there anything that you are kind of a, a strongly attached to on your, your bicycle rides? Are there any creature comforts, any food items, anything like that that you you always take with you and you couldn't do without? I don't think so, actually. I, I really do try to strip down to the bare essentials. And I think the only things that I would miss would the technology, actually. It's the, the computer and the phone because they allow you to do it. They make the navigation possible. They make finding accommodation possible. And so they're the things I would miss. Otherwise, I'm, I'm already right down to the basics of existence, to be honest. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said for, for traveling, right? And mm. we've got a draft kit list already, but I think, that, you know, we'll be seeing what we can get on and off that yeah. <laughs> over the months to come. And you can always buy things. Just, just go with the yeah. minimum. You can pick stuff up if you need it. Yeah, yeah. And that's a good point as well. It's not like we're off into to the wilderness and never to see civilization again. So. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's nothing, nothing set in stone. No, and we're hoping to use kit drops as well because mm. of the whole, uh, there's there's no rules for supported, self-supported. Um, yeah, obviously you were self-supported in, in your record, mm. but um, we're kind of, of the opinion, we'll be mostly self-supported. We won't have any support crew as such, but we're more than happy to pick up but pick up stuff that we've had dropped around the, around the world for us just to oh, and especially parts where are you going to find an extra long gear cable in yeah ex- exactly yeah and yeah things like that um spe- you know tandem specific parts and mm. i think we figured out we needed 10 chains something like that as well so yeah. we're not yeah. we're not carrying those i'm afraid <laughs> <laughs> chains are so heavy yeah i mean that, that's 
I mean, they're, they're at least 250 grams each, aren't they? So that's like yeah. best part of three kilos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think. But I don't think we'll be trying to shed that weight off ourselves. I think we'll be as light as possible, but yeah. it won't be so we can carry carry chains around the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, and last but not least, why should we ride a tandem around the world and try and break the world record together? <laughs> it's it's well, whether you break it or not, and I obviously I really really hope you do. Uh, it's something you'll never forget. You, you know, it's one of those things that for the rest of your life it will be defined according to this point in time it'll everything you ever say in the future will be oh it was just after i did the record or you know oh, just before i did the record and it's one of those very rare instances where you get those little landmarks in your life that everything gets judged by oh that's that's a fantastic point Thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's been great to chat and you've come up with loads of little interesting nuggets of advice there. So um, I'm actually really looking forward to going back and <laughs> editing this and listening all through and hearing those all again. But um, yeah, it'll be great to, to see what you get up to in the future too. So thanks uh, so much for coming I'll on. We're following you closely as well. Thanks. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you.